A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy New Year, everyone. Vanessa is on a writing retreat this week, so we are bringing you a special episode of Live from Pemberley on a name you've heard me say many times before, Mary Wollstonecraft. So as you know, we've been thinking a lot about Austin's politics and feminism over the course of this series, and we keep bringing up Mary Wollstonecraft as as a conversation partner and sometimes even as a counterexample of a certain type of feminist writing from around that era. You know, we've been so interested in how Wollstonecraft has informed Austin and how Austin has really sort of fought against her But we wanted to just take some time to fully delve in to learn a little bit more about Wollstonecraft and about her major feminist ideas. So we wanted to reach out to Professor Charlotte Gordon, who's a distinguished professor of the humanities at Endicott College. And the reason we wanted to talk to Charlotte, in addition to her being a brilliant historian and thinker about literature, is that she wrote this fantastic book called Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. I wanted to just give you a heads up. The topic of suicide does come up in our conversation and lots of scandal, too. So just listen carefully. Take care of yourself. I'm Lauren Sandler, and this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. So just to kick us off, can you give us a little bit of a primer for listeners who may not have encountered Wollstonecraft on their bookshelves or in the wild on who she was, why she matters so much to us? She was a fairly shocking individual when she lived. She was one of the most famous women on both sides of the Atlantic in the 18th century, and she wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which is really one of the first documents in English that said, you know, women should have an education and should be allowed to direct their own lives with agency. But she also was uh, very adventurous sexually. And so that combined with her message made her a very exciting and radical woman of the time period. And she divided people. She was kind of a lightning bolt. You were either for her or against her. I love her because of her ideas and her bravery and her sense that 
these are the ideas that have to be articulated. And she didn't care what people said. And they called her all sorts of horrible things. And still she persisted. Will you give us a sense of how she became this radical thinker and this scandalous figure, how she went from her early childhood into something that may have seemed inconceivable in the era in which she was writing and living? You know, her biography certainly set her up to be a radical. Her dad was an alcoholic and abusive, and some of her earliest memories are of sleeping on the threshold of her parents' bedroom door to protect her mom from when her drunken father came home from the bars. She really became anti-marriage. And I think, you know, many people of that time period, many people today have alcoholic parents, et cetera. But there was something in her that fought back. She couldn't stand the injustice that surrounded her. Her brother got to go to school. She was desperate for an education. She didn't want to just be embroidering. You know, she wanted to learn Latin. <laughs> she wanted to read the great books, but she wasn't allowed to. And her whole life changed when she was about 16. She got really depressed. She could hardly get out of bed. She could hardly bathe. And fortunately for her, next door to the family lived a kind of progressive clergyman who brought her into his library and said, you know, I think you might be interested in reading this guy, John Locke. And she starts reading John Locke right at the same time that all of the interesting Americans who are about to cause a revolution start reading John Locke. And she reads that all human beings are born with a blank slate, that their soul has no male or female, you know, it's not a gendered thing. And she found that really inspirational. And she took off. Like from that moment on, she was dedicated to figuring out how to live independently from her family, which is very difficult in the 18th century. If you were a middle-class woman, as I think listeners of this podcast know, your options were pretty limited. Your great career choice was who your husband was going to be. And if you didn't want to get married, then you'd have to be a companion to an elderly person, a governess, a teacher. And so Wollstonecraft tried all of those things. And I mean, it really does make me laugh to think about hiring her as a companion to your elderly mother. <laughs> her first job as a companion for a old person who had scared all of her companions away didn't last long because she frightened the old person. <laughs> the old woman was terrified of Wollstonecraft's judgments. Like every time the woman ate, you know, fancy food or put on a fancy dress, Wollstonecraft would glower at her and send judgment her way. And my other favorite story about these early years of Wollstonecraft is the Anglo-Irish family hires her as a governess. Again, the idea of hiring Mary Wollstonecraft as your governess strikes me as slightly misguided if you're a normal, you know, <laughs> a normal family of the time period, but they did. And so she travels up to Ireland. And the first thing she does with this family, she takes the girls out for a walk around the estate and shows them how their parents are oppressing the peasants in Ireland. And it just goes, you know, uphill, downhill from there. By the time she gets fired from that job, she's ready to put pen to paper. She has a lot of ideas about the education of women. And she's made friends with a progressive publisher who really loves her writing voice. And he says, I think you could make a living. I think that I can sell your work. And I think it's because she had her own 
voice because she hadn't had an education. So she writes with this really interesting combination of slang and self-educated, what, I don't know, philosophy. So I think that's one of the reasons we can still read her today is she'll be talking about ideas and then suddenly she'll say, according to the experts, women don't have a brain. And then she'll say, what nonsense, you know, or... (laughs) You can hear her. It's like she comes right onto the stage and talks directly to us, even in the 21st century. So she does get read and she does begin to earn a living with her pen. And she becomes increasingly outraged because that's the kind of person she was. I think she was born angry and enraged. And I love that about her, actually. And she was also living and writing during a time of war between England and France, which is, of course, really significant within Pride and Prejudice. Except I think that her relationship to war and conflict and what was possible or impossible in the context was very, very different than perhaps how Austen was suggesting things to readers once Pride and Prejudice came out quite a few years later. Can you give us a sense of Wollstonecraft's relationship to revolution in France and the threat of the French military on England and what that might tell us a little bit in terms of what we're reading right now with Pride and Prejudice? What a great question, Lauren. I love that question. I've just been thinking about the collision of radical events or radical political events and the rise of revolutionaries. And for Wollstonecraft, not only was she, you know, born outraged and angry because of her personal circumstances, if there was an injustice, you know, anywhere, she saw it and was ready to fight against injustice. And when the French Revolution began, she was psyched. She and all of her friends, who were all men in London, were thrilled. They thought, here we go. This is how the world should be. The aristocrats should be on the run. The people should be rising up. Yes, yes, yes. And as all the British are fleeing Paris to get away from the violence, Wollstonecraft boards the very first ship she can get on to become a foreign correspondent from the revolution. She arrives there and again, she's psyched. I mean, she doesn't like the violence. I mean, she arrives and a few months after she gets there, the king gets his head cut off and that is somewhat distressing. And she didn't really like walking through the streets through puddles of blood. That was too much, but not really. It was an opportunity for her to bring her own radical ideas into the mix. And she's consulted by the French sort of radicals who say, what should women's role be in this new world that we're creating? And she thought, this is how she wanted life to be. And so even as Austin is coming of age in many ways, uh, Wollstonecraft is falling in love during the middle of this revolution in Paris with a sexy American who says, you know, I don't believe in marriage either. Because Wollstonecraft said, and that's why she's so interesting to read next to Austin, why would a woman ever get married? It's a kind of legal prostitution. The moment a woman gets married, as you all know, she loses her rights to property. She already didn't have any legal or economic or political existence, but now she really can't own anything on her own. And so Wollstonecraft is famously anti-marriage. So she, as my students would say, she hooks up with this American in Paris. She's so happy. They're soulmates. 
they neither of them believe in marriage. They are radicals. When she gets pregnant, she knows that this is just what life should be like. They live together and she has a baby. She refuses doctors because being pregnant and having babies is not an illness. She gives birth and she's hiking around like 20 minutes later from what I can see. I mean, she is so not set back from this birth. And everything is great. And then the sexy American deserts her. And not only is her heart broken, but all of her ideals, you know, shatter around her feet. And I guess from the perspective of Austin, I mean, I think this is the terror that's sort of underneath so much of the Austin plots, you know, and Wollstonecraft braves it. Like she perseveres through this desertion and being left an unmarried single mom. Well, while we're talking about this chapter of Wollstonecraft's traumatic life, I mean, I do think I'm hearing you talk about her perseverance, but I mean, she tries to commit suicide twice after he abandons her with a baby, right? I think that it was a very hard one perseverance and that, as I would love to discuss, she she ends up being this sort of ultimate cautionary tale. And I feel like that's such a part of it that even Mary Wollstonecraft couldn't overcome the emotional pain of abandonment, the agony of raising a baby alone in a society that even in France thought that that was an outrageous thing to do. And of course, her personal life then comes to completely overshadow for many, many years all that she has to tell us about women and humanity in the world. She comes down to us, as I said earlier, a scandalous figure. And as you know, Lauren, for many years after, if you look up the word prostitute in the English dictionary, it said, see Mary Wollstonecraft. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And you're right. She does try to kill herself. Uh, when she she chases down, the name of the sexy American who abandoned her was named Gilbert. She chases him back to London. She figures out where he is and he's shacked up with an actress. But the, one of the things I love about Wollstonecraft is she goes and she bangs on the door of the house where he is living with a young actress. And she says, I mean, to me, she sounds like one of us. She says, you know, why don't the three of us live together? Then little Fanny, our baby, can have two parents. Gilbert, you and this lovely young woman can share a bed fine. And young woman, are you getting an education? Because he's going to get tired of you. And you do need your own independence, ultimately. And Gilbert considers it. But the young woman is like, get out of here. You're crazy. So you're right. She does try to kill herself. And, you know, trying to kill yourself as a young woman, as you know, Lauren, during this time was such an epidemic that the government had hired people, had said, listen, anyone who catches a young woman floating in the Thames, you will get a reward if you save her and drag her to safety, because it was a horrible time actually to be a woman, especially a woman who gets pregnant outside of marriage. So, I mean, it's so interesting to think about Austin in this world where it is so dangerous to be a Wollstonecraft. But Wollstonecraft comes, she's saved actually by Gilbert. Wait, she wasn't fished out of the Thames by a stranger? She was the second suicide attempt. The first suicide attempt, she's saved by Gilbert. It's I think it's an overdose. Uh -huh. And so he comes, he saves her. And then this is when he has this brilliant idea, I'm being sarcastic, that she and her now toddler should go to Scandinavia 
I mean, in the 18th century, no one went to Scandinavia. I mean, men didn't go to Scandinavia, let alone women who had just tried to kill themselves with their toddler. But Wollstonecraft says, okay, why do you want me to go to Scandinavia? And Gilbert, who was always trying to make money, had a shipping business and one of his ships had gone missing somewhere in Norway. So he says to Wollstonecraft, if you go to Scandinavia and you find this ship, you know, maybe we can get back together. So off she goes with little Fanny. And this is where a huge turning point happens for her that actually changes the history of literature. She wanders around, it's early spring, summer, and she wanders around in that gorgeous Swedish summer and then Norway, and she smells the pines and she eats strawberries and she sees waterfalls pouring down, you know, cliffs. And she then she goes inside and writes about it. And she says, I've been writing kind of inside out. I notice that when I'm walking around in nature, contemplating nature, I start to feel better. And I like this new kind of writing I'm doing, which is reflective and psychological and emotional, where I talk about my feelings. And there's a lot to say about this, but ultimately she doesn't find the ship. She comes back to England. Gilbert rejects her one more time. She does jump in the Thames and to her great annoyance is fished out. But she comes back to life. And while she'd been in Scandinavia discovering the healing powers of nature, she'd been writing letters to Gilbert almost every day. And this is actually one of the reasons that drew me to her is that historically, especially second wave feminists are upset that the famous author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women is writing a man saying, let's get back together. Like, how could she be so needy? But I don't read the letters that way. I read them as very strong and assertive and an opportunity for her to really sharpen her philosophical ideas against him. So she says, yeah, let's get back together. But she also says, you know, all of your ideas are wrong and you've really betrayed a lot of our philosophy. And remember, this is our philosophy and you're being really materialistic. What about all of your ideals, you loser? So after she's fished out of the Thames, she puts those letters together. She edits them and they become her most popular book. We don't read it today, but the name of the book is Letters from Scandinavia. And it's read by two young poets named William Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge. And they say, wow, this idea of wandering around in nature and then writing about our feelings afterwards is a really good idea. Maybe we should write like that. And I mean, I don't know about you, this is not how I was taught about the origins of romanticism, but in many ways, this really is the origins of a movement, a literary movement. And the book itself, if she hadn't written this book, we might not have had another very famous book about 20 years later named Frankenstein, because Letters from Scandinavia is read by a very famous English political philosopher named Godwin, William Godwin. And he reads the book and he says, if ever there were a book calculated to make you fall in love with the author, this is the book. So to make this short, they get together. She gets pregnant once again without marriage. So they do get married grumpily because neither of them believe in marriage. And she gives birth to a little girl that no one thinks will survive. They name her Mary and that little girl grows up to be Mary Shelley, who writes Frankenstein. So this kind of literary heritage really does interest me. And although 
I loved what you said, Lauren, about Wollstonecraft being a cautionary tale, you know, for the Austins in the world. I think she was also inspirational for a whole generation as well, who knew how to look past all the negative propaganda and who read A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And I mean, over here in America, one of the sort of signs that you were a progressive person was to own a vindication of the rights of women. So those early abolitionists, I don't think this audience will know them, but uh, one of the most famous ones whose name was Lucretia Mott would keep a vindication of the rights of women out on her coffee table so that people understood where she stood with women's rights. So she does continue to inspire at the same time that she frightens people. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So the reason that we know so much about her scandalous personal life, far more than one would often know about a moral philosopher or writer of treatises or novels in that day, is because a book was published soon after she died, right after she gave birth to who would become Mary Shelley. Can you tell us a little bit about who wrote that book and why we know so much about the things that she might have wanted to keep private? It's sort of one of the complicated, tragic parts of Mary Wollstonecraft's life. Ten days after she gives birth to little Mary, she dies of childbed fever. And William Godwin, her husband, who at that time is a kind of rock star of political philosophy, is so grief-stricken that he sits down almost immediately and writes what he calls a memoir of the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And it's a really complicated text. I think we can point to the text as uh, one of the reasons why she gets vilified. And that's because Godwin spells out all of the rumors, all of the events that he knows about, which are all pointing towards sexual escapades, sexual irregularity. So not all of the stories that he tells are true, but people assume he knows the truth since he was her husband. She, at this point in her life, right before she dies, people are scandalized by her, but they take her seriously. She has a huge cohort of followers and conservatives were going to hate her anyways. But after her husband publishes this kind of tell-all memoir, that's when the vilification begins. And people ask, you know, why would he do that? And I think, well, I think it's complicated. I think on the one hand, He's angry. She's abandoned him. You know, she's dead. He was always interested in making money. And as we know, as writers, there's nothing better than a tell-all scandalous book. But I think the most benign interpretation is these were also his beliefs. Like he did not see anything wrong with her sexual history. And I think he thought by telling her sexual history, he could help in the cause of liberation, but it harmed her. And if she hadn't died, I don't think that she would have come down to us as this super scandalous, vilified figure. 
So we're in this moment of history where Mary Wollstonecraft has written these books, these radical books that really rethink what women are, how women can be educated, should be educated, what is required in the raising of daughters and, you know, of enriching daughters' minds so that there is a greater shot at some sort of equality and fairness and decency in the lives of women. And then she dies, and this scandalous book comes out, sort of outing her in this way. And right around this time, this is when Jane Austen starts fomenting Pride and Prejudice. Mm. And indeed, right after her death, right around when the memoirs are being published, is when she's actually writing the thing. Can you give us some sense, I mean, of course, because we don't have a tell-all about Austen the same way that we do from Godwin, but Can you help us surmise how much Wollstonecraft, both on the page and in life, could have informed Austen's thinking, her development of characters, the points that she wanted to make when she wrote Pride and Prejudice, and how that exists within the context of that era? There's so much to say about that. When Wollstonecraft is recovering from the second suicide attempt, she goes out into the country to recover. And she stays at a friend's house. And during that time, she's, I can't remember exactly how far away she is from where Austin is at that point, but she and Austin are very close together in the countryside. And some of us have wondered, did they meet? I don't know. I mean, isn't that fun to think about? I know, but we have absolutely no evidence other than that they were very close to each other at the same, you know, same moment in history. But I think if you're a Jane Austen, you can't escape knowing the whole story of Wollstonecraft. You've probably almost certainly read A Vindication. You might also have read her very first book, which is Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. And Thoughts on the Education of Daughters is so great. I mean, in some ways, it's even more radical than a vindication of the rights of women because it spells out how limited options are for women. And it's so clear, even though my students, you know, miss this all the time with Austin, that that's really one of the sort of parameters of all of the Austin books, right? Is these are your choices and your choices really are which husband, not what career, are you going to be a lawyer or a doctor? No, it's you're going to exercise your judgment around who you're going to marry. And as we know, I mean, it's so interesting that Austin herself, we now know, refused an offer of marriage. And, you know, that makes sense to me. Why would you surrender your rights of ownership and your rights of property for being a wife? Why would you do that? So I think her books, you would not know this unless you knew the Wollstonecraft kind of philosophy, they seem profoundly informed by Wollstonecraft's ideas. It's been fun to sort of like play the game of find the Wollstonecraft as we've been reading. You know, we'll see Lady Catherine de Bourgh talk about the importance of education of girls. We see Lizzie owning it in certain moments. We, I think, feel that Mrs. Bennett becomes who she is because she is not exposed to mm-hmm. to books and to learning. And that's, of course, this major chasm between her and Mr. Bennett, who wants to spend all his time in the library. Like, I feel like these ideas are so present in this book, even if it's almost like they're not the A story necessarily. They're like the B story. <laughs> but I think that one of Wollstonecraft's 
bigger points is that all of these things are interrelated, that, you know, you can't think about the fall of the aristocracy without thinking about the rise of capital. You can't consider what it means to have a relationship to capital without thinking about a relationship to gender. You can't think about what it means to think about gender without thinking about who we get to be and what our minds get to do, what our bodies get to do. I wonder how much it feels that Jane Austen was doing something different with what she may have gleaned from Wollstonecraft than a lot of the other writers, especially the other women who were writing in that era. There's nothing Wollstonecraft hated worse than scribbling lady novelists. She hated romances with carriages and horses and men rescuing women. And I think Her mom, who was very weak and abused by her father, used to retreat to reading silly novels, as Wollstonecraft would say. And in some of Wollstonecraft's own novels, some of the women who suffer the most are ones who are reading romances. And as we know, I think that Jane Austen is such a great antidote to those kind of rescue novels. And we see, I love your points, you know, Uh, Mrs. Bennett, yes. And of course, poor Lydia. I mean, and why is Lydia Lydia? Because she refuses to read books and she refuses to get an education. And I think that that is, as you said, it's the B plot, but of course it filters right into the A plot because that's what separates Elizabeth and Jane from the others. And those great moments where we see Elizabeth reading by herself, that she actually reads books I mean, how can that not be Wollstonecraftian? I mean, doesn't it seem so closely connected? Yes, and yet, and this is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately, to separate Lydia's libertinism Mm -hmm. from the life of the mind as though those are two completely separate things. That, of course, Lydia runs off and privileges men and pleasure and those elements of her life in a way that seems so out of whack. There's also something that feels deeply Wollstonecraftian about that in some way, that there's a different way of telling the Lydia story than what Austen writes, which really is saying, yes, she wants to have pleasure and adventure. And this is the thing that that she's embracing as her own desire. Why are we so scandalized? Why is her running off with someone something that could possibly ruin a family? Why are we accepting that system as something that can really be the the downfall of this family that already has so much said against it, but Lydia is going to be the biggest problem of all. Yeah, points well taken. I mean, I think Wollstonecraft would have loathed Lydia, but I think she would have been horrified that Lydia's behavior would endanger a family. And I think the reason she would have loathed Lydia is not because Lydia ran away with a man, but because Wollstonecraft was so famously serious about ideas. So you could you could do whatever you wanted in Wollstonecraft's books as long as you were being true to your philosophy. So if your philosophy was freedom and even pleasure, fine. But to just do it, to just run away with someone because they're wearing a red coat and you like ribbons, that she would not hold with. But she, yeah, she didn't, she didn't believe in sexual scandal, but she does talk a lot in Vindication, as you know, about how women have been encouraged to think only about their appearance, to be pleasing to men and how they don't realize that they're their own worst enemies when they do that. 
and that it's so important to develop one's own inner life and one's own sense of self. But the whole society is set up against that. And I think I just know that you talk about this a lot, but those moments of solitude for Austin's heroines, you know, I think are so important and they're they're showing us the independence of these women, their ability to stand on their own two feet, no matter what. And I think for all that Lydia could stand for a radical, you know, rebellion, I feel like Wollstonecraft would not condemn sex outside of marriage, but she would condemn frivolity. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about the two writers in terms of their feminism, because, I mean, no one questions, or that's not true. I'm sure that there are plenty of people who question Wollstonecraft's brand of feminism, but within the canon of radical feminists in history, like, you know, she's the queen. (laughs) And then there's Austen, And I think that Austin is someone who a lot of people have wrestled with in terms of her relationship to who women can be and what women need and what women deserve and should expect in life. And I wonder where you see Austin, Uh, not that you have to like give her a feminist rating, (laughs) but where do you see her in terms of, of any discourse in terms of advancing the progress of women, specifically coming out of the era of Wollstonecraft? I guess I would say that Austin, far from writing romances, is writing exquisitely detailed examples of realism before realism becomes, you know, fashionable over here in the States. And I think as those of us who teach her sometimes, I think our students come to her thinking that these are love stories. And I suppose they are. But I read them very pragmatically that unlike Wollstonecraft, who wants to change the world and is really very much an enlightenment figure, you can tell that Austin is the next generation and Wollstonecraft dies right as there is this enormous backlash in England against the French Revolution. And Wollstonecraft's own daughter is going to have to deal with this, Mary Shelley. And so I think sometimes I think of Jane Austen as almost writing handbooks for how to survive in the really, really tight parameters that face middle-class women. And so I don't, I guess that is, I mean, that's how I think of her. I don't see her as a reactionary at all. And, but I also don't see her as a political philosopher, but she didn't want to be a political philosopher any more than Wollstonecraft's daughter wanted to be, or could be. It wasn't a period where women could be. It's so interesting to think about how Wollstonecraft's personal life, you know, scandalized people so much that it almost squashed her legacy for a century. I mean, I I remember even just like in the 90s, I was studying her in England and living in Newington Green, where she had founded a school for girls. And I did not even know that that's where the school was. It was only in 2020 that a statue of her in the park or statue (laughs) dedicated to her in the park there was established. And it's the only sort of relic, the only memorial like that, other than her own grave outside St. Pancras, atop which Mary Shelley famously lost her virginity. But that's another story for another (laughs) bottle of wine. But there's no other, you know, like physical monument to this to this figure, in part because all of the repression that came after her so so deeply erased her. I mean, she's canonized like in an English department way or a philosophy department way, but you know, she's not on the T-shirts. She's not on the tote bags in quite the same way. I mean, for our listeners, she might be. But 
you know, I, I do think about what it means to basically be eliminated versus lionized and the different paths of Austin and Wollstonecraft over the past 250 years is, is quite dramatically different. You know, I used to say we almost lost Wollstonecraft to history. And as a writer and a historian, I think a lot about what happens to people when they die and the stories that we tell about them and who manipulates the stories, who burns the diaries, who writes the falsehoods, all of those things. But I did say that to an international audience, actually in Poland, and a woman raised her hand and said, well, actually, I've been on a hunt to find all of the ways that Wollstonecraft was kept alive. And in England, she does go underwater somewhat, you know, because you didn't want to be, if you're Harriet Martineau, you don't want to be associated with this sort of scandalous sexual history. But in France, in America, even in Central Europe, apparently people are reading Wollstonecraft. Her name is in the newspapers here in America so many times in the early 19th century, right on up. So I guess I don't know why we don't have tote bags. I, I kind of wish we did. <laughs> but I guess she's become a kind of password for some of us for, you know, a kind of this is this is what I believe and this is who I stand for. And for second wave feminists, Wollstonecraft seemed somewhat reactionary to some second wave feminists. And so then she gets kind of lost by the far left, right? Because she doesn't seem radical enough. And of course, those are people who had lost her context. You know, what she did say was so shocking and radical for her time. And I think that's the miracle of her and the miracle of all these exceptional people like Austin. Where did they come from? How did they have the courage and the determination, I guess, to craft the books that they did to to say the words that they said to live the lives that they led i i'm in awe of them and you know whenever i'm scared to do something i think of austincraft but honestly i'm a huge austin fan as well and if i need solace i turn to austin and they both speak directly to readers in a way that we can appreciate but in a way that still inspires me at least but probably members of your audience and of course, I mean, you write so brilliantly in your book, Romantic Outlaws, about what it means to pass these ideas through generations, but in different forms and different stories and different moments of history. And I love talking to you about how that gets carried through to now. It has been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you. You're such, such a generous voice on this. You are a treasure. And this conversation has been just nothing but pleasure for me. Thank you, Lauren. I have to say it's such a pleasure to talk to you because I don't usually get to bring Austin and Wollstonecraft together. It's fun to really ponder how are they connected? And I wish we had definite answers. Don't you wish we could just ask them? I mean, maybe that's what fuels my writing life is I'm trying to ask Wollstonecraft, what did you really think? And I feel that way about Austin too. So thank you so much. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. We'll be back in two weeks with our regular format, and we'll be reading chapter 43, just 43. Oh, it's a great one. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. And if you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
We're a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we're distributed by ACAST. Thanks always to our Jane Level patrons, Viscount Elise Kennegaratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegass of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Londia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks again to Charlotte Gordon for talking to us. Be sure to check out her wonderful book, Romantic Outlaws. And thanks, as ever, to our team, Vanessa Zoltan, Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.